it's, it's become fashionable in some urbanist circles to downplay the words community character because so many people use it to oppose things. But community character matters. Hi, everyone. You've tuned in to the Active Towns podcast, conversations about creating a culture of activity in our communities. I'm John Zimmerman, founder of the Active Towns Initiative and your host for this podcast journey. Thanks for joining us. It's always so wonderful to have you along for the ride. The voice you heard in the cold open, perhaps quite familiar to many of you, belongs to none other than Cade Benfield, currently with Placemakers and previously with NRDC, the Natural Resources Defense Council, and Smart Growth America, an organization Cade helped found. As someone who describes himself as being near the tail end of a long and, I would interject, distinguished career, he takes a moment to reflect back, explains why pausing to appreciate beauty is so important, and provides some truly sage advice for those of us in the thick of trying to create places people love. But before we start rolling into that conversation, please allow me a brief moment to mention that this episode is being brought to you by the generous support of our donors and monthly patrons from our Patreon page. For those of you who might be in a position to help out, we have several very convenient ways for you to donate. And as a special thank you for your contributions, we have some Active Towns logo items for you, including bike stickers, hats, and microfiber tube bandanas, also known as a neck gaiter. To learn more or make a donation, head on over to ActiveTowns, that's plural, .org, and click on the donate button in the top right corner of the page. Thank you all so much for helping out in any way that you can. I really do appreciate whatever support you're able to provide. Okay, let's get rolling with this discussion with Cade Benfield. Kate, it's so wonderful to welcome you into the Active Towns podcast. How are you, sir? I am doing well, John, and thank you so much for uh, inviting me. I've, I've been looking forward to this ever since you did. Well, hey, uh, one of the things that I love doing is thinking back to the very first time I met my guest uh, on the Active Towns podcast, and uh, that would have been when you actually met me in the D.C. area. I was in the area and you were gracious enough to come and meet up with me. And uh, we chatted for a little bit and then you took me for a walk. And that particular stroll has some significance because it it also sort of reflects a routine ritual of reflection that you have. And so tell us a little bit about that practice of strolling through the neighborhood. Well, it's something I do a lot, as you know, and I am lucky enough to live somewhere where I, I seldom need to drive anywhere or, or even take transit for that matter. And there are many places I can walk to and in several directions, and uh, I enjoy it. I usually take a camera along, and I enjoy looking for photographs to capture. And, you know, it's, it's something I've been doing uh, ever since uh, I've been working from home. And I'm glad you and I had the opportunity that day. I only wish, we, wish we'd had a little more time. I could have taken you on a longer walk, shown you some some more interesting neighborhoody kinds of things, but it was it was a, a great way to meet. 
Yeah. And one of the things that, that I, I, I love about social media is that it helps to facilitate this. And I don't know if you have the same feeling on this, but I, I knew to, to reach out to you because of social media, because we were already, quote unquote, Facebook friends. And so I was like, I've got to meet up with Cade. And, you know, subsequent to that is we would run into each other at conferences, yeah, otherwise we we wouldn't have. And I, I think social media has been amazing in, in that way. You know, I'm, I, I'm now affiliated with the planning firm uh, Placemakers. And I think had we not all been on social media at the same time, I don't think we would have gotten to know each other as well. And it, it has solidified and expanded my professional contacts and my professional uh, friends, because uh, many of them, like yourself, have, have become friends as well as, as people I think of professionally. And, and it's kind of, a, kind of amazing that that world didn't exist in the same way 10 years ago. And I like it. I, I think probably Early on, I might have liked it a little too much, you know, and gotten addicted to it like some people do. But I'm really glad that uh, you and I have that together, and uh, we still uh, interact uh, with each other on social media. And uh, it was a great way to know a bit about each other before we uh, actually met in person. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And you mentioned that you're, you that you work from home. And uh, of course, uh, the current situation that we're in now with the coronavirus pandemic is that many, many more people are working from home. And so we're also sort of uh, for, you know, I'm, I'm, all, I'm like you, I've, I've also been working from home for the last decade or so. And so there hasn't been much change in my routine other than the fact I'm not traveling and I'm not filming and I'm not snapping photos in other cities. Talk a little bit about that, because it, the other thing that has kind of transformed what we do and how we do it is kind of what we're doing right now is we're having a virtual conversation. We do have a video feed, even though we're not recording the video feed. Gosh, it was a couple of weeks ago I caught a webinar presentation that you were doing, which, again, was in this video platform. Amazing. Yeah, and I think several times a week now I'm on some video platform or other. Uh, some of them are social. Uh, many of them are professional. I'm I'm taking a video French class. You know, it's it's like that's the world we're in, and I think different people obviously have different comfort levels with what they feel able to do during the pandemic. You know, in my case, I, I know I'm in some risk categories and I take very few chances, which means my life is especially one of virtual interaction. And uh, I, I'm really glad that we have these platforms now. You know, if we'd had this pandemic 20 years ago, we it, it would just be a lot less personal, you know, or a lot, lot more telephone, which, you know, I've, I've never enjoyed telephone nearly as much as I enjoy the video interactions. And, 
it's a different world now. I hope it's not a permanent one. And uh, uh, it's one that we are, are all sort of going through a personal calculus and, and deciding how to relate to it. Yeah, yeah. Well, you mentioned a, a couple of things there that I'd love to follow up on, and and one is is that you're taking a video French class, which is fantastic. <laughs> That's great. Uh, the second thing that that I wanted to to point out is that yes, because of the vulnerability uh, that we have, is that we've we've had to adjust. You know what we would normally be doing in the summertime. I would normally be traveling from city to city, trying to capture and tell the story of some of the great things that I've been seeing happening in terms of cities trying to become more people-oriented places and get, you know, become more walkable and more bikeable. And I love trying to tell those stories. And for the past five years, that's mostly been in the video format and making short films and trying to film documentaries. Now I'm <laughs> shifted over to the, the audio podcast uh, format. And so I'm super grateful for all of you who have agreed to, you know, come online with me and have a chat. So should we admit to, to folks that we uh, we had to go through the extra hoops and, and effort to make sure we could have a video? <laughs> I guess we just did. <laughs> yeah. I, I, I mean, one of the uh, hitches of now relying on technology is that you know, technology is still quirky for a lot of us. And it, it took you and me about 20 minutes to <laughs> sort of connect with each other in a way that allows us to have this conversation. But it, it was a, it was a successful process. Our listeners will be happy to know. Yeah. And, and to be clear, we could have had the conversation without the video, but we just know that it's better this way. It's much and, better. And also to be clear, I don't think either one of us will be so bold as to say we know exactly what happened and what, how it got fixed. <laughs> We're just happy that it's fixed. So that's that's good. So, hey, let's shift gears and talk a little bit more about uh, some of the, the recent projects that you're involved with. It's an interesting time of my life where I am more at the tail end of a very long career rather than in the middle of it or at the beginning as I once was. And so I find myself being a lot more choosy now about uh, what I do. And I have sort of reduced my, 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 my commitments uh, in, in a lot of ways. But I am, as I mentioned before, affiliated with Placemakers, uh, which is a great group of people whom I'm sure you know and and I hope some of our listeners know Placemakers is an interesting firm. It's very much a 21st century firm in that no two of us are in the same city. So all of our communication and projects are, are virtual, except when we meet with a client and we converge on a particular location in order to do that. So I do special projects with Placemakers. I do interviews like this, uh, and I do a lot of talks and presentations, all of which used to be in person, and now, of course, many of which are video during the pandemic. And then the other thing I do is advise people. I, I think that's 
one of the things that happens when you become, you know, an older guy is you become an advisor, which is fine with me. It's, it's a nice position to be in when it's, it's somebody else's responsibility, but you still get to weigh in and, and pretend like you know something. So, you know, like right now, I'm going over a manuscript that somebody sent me uh, and we'll be giving him feedback on that. You know, a couple of weeks ago, it was a, uh, a, a project that someone was uh, applying for in Louisville, Kentucky to sort of redevelop a defunct campus facility. And so I was able to, you know, work with him on ways that I thought aspects of that could be improved. There's some things I used to do, like teaching, that I have now stepped away from. Uh, I think I'm technically still on the faculty at George Washington University, but I'm not actively teaching anymore. And after 20-some years, I finally stepped down from the board of Smart Growth America, which is an organization that I helped found and, and very proud of in a lot of ways. But you know, it was time to let the younger generation run with that. And I uh, painfully made the decision <laughs> to, to let go. Uh, and it's felt good. They're doing great without me. And I, I, I keep tabs on them and they're all still my friends. But that was a huge chunk of my uh, professional involvement there for a a very long time and just as of the last year it now isn't so you know those things kind of describe my my professional life you know personally i'm involved with stuff like uh, photography and you know projects like that i hope to do a little more writing had uh well still have an idea for uh, for a book, if I can find the right co-author, I don't want to do it alone. I guess what's what's different about my life now, as opposed to ten years ago, is now I'm now I'm choosing. Yeah, and we and we talked a little bit uh, last week about you know that process of being choosy and and you know the projects that you're working in the context that we were talking about was. Uh, the build main presentation and the webinar that you were doing. And we'll talk a little bit more about that particular presentation in a little bit. I do want to touch base with you, though. Are, are you able to get out for, for daily walks in the neighborhood? Almost daily. Uh, our, our, our weather is not as bad as Texas weather, which you have, but it's pretty hot. And I'm uh, pretty careful about my health. So, you know, if it's... Uh, 95 and humid, chances are I'm not going to go for much of a walk. But I, I do get it's, it's something that my wife Sharon and I like to do together. She's still working full time. And at the end of her day, it helps her sort of, you know, discharge and recharge to go for a walk. And, you know, our neighborhood provides opportunities to to do that. I still get out, out on the uh, bike every now and then. I was quite an avid cyclist at one point in my life. Now I'm a very part-time recreational cyclist, but you know, that's enjoyable too. So I'm, I'm, I'm getting out. I'm, I'm uh, waving the active town's flag, you know, a little bit as I, as I'm able to. It's, it's, it's not the same as, uh, as when I was younger in a lot of ways. 
but uh, it's important, as I'm sure uh, is reflected in your own work, that we remain active for as long as we can uh, for all sorts of reasons and that we have communities that facilitate that. Uh, and I'm lucky enough to uh, be in a community that does. And, uh, and I, I do take advantage. Yeah. Yeah. So let's talk a little bit more about that particular issue, which is the community that supports walkability and an active lifestyle, being able to meet much of your daily needs by uh, active mobility choice. But then let's also do an overlay of the reality of, of the pandemic, you know, right outside our door here. And you saw a few photos that I posted earlier this week of the reality is that uh, many streets uh, in the United States and, you know, specifically in our neighborhood here, we don't even have sidewalks. And so it's shared space. And so it's, a, it's an environment where if, if you have the numbers, <laughs> you, can, you can really help with that traffic calming. Describe your neighborhood and how it, it's maybe functioning a little differently especially at the height of maybe uh, of, of the, the coronavirus pandemic? I think uh, the pandemic has gotten a lot more people outside. We have uh, always had a neighborhood where, where people were out with their kids, where people walk their dogs. We've got a lot of, a lot of folks walking their dogs in our neighborhood. But it's also brought out People like Sharon and myself, you know, who who now just walk a little bit more. You know, she's working at home now. Before, she would get home from work at 7 o'clock or 7.30, dead tired. It's time to get something together to, to eat, you know. Now she finishes up at 5.30 and, uh, or 6 or whatever, you know, and she doesn't have to make that journey home. And uh, we've got time to walk together. So uh, it, it has changed. Traffic initially was a lot lighter. I'm not sure it is anymore to the same extent uh, in D.C. where I live. The neighborhood does have sidewalks. It does have... If one felt comfortable now going to restaurants and shops and stuff, we we have those. My neighborhood street feels very residential, but if I go two blocks in any, any direction, I am uh, on a commercial street. So I think the neighborhood, you know, facilitates certain kinds of neighborhoods, as you know, facilitate walkability and and, and, and others don't. This one is, is very pleasant. We have big trees, so there's shade, mature trees. Uh, the neighborhood was uh, built largely in the 1920s and early 1930s. And so a lot of those trees are at full maturity now. You know, I mentioned, uh, I mentioned the sidewalks. It's fairly compact, but not too compact. It's, it's human scale. The homes, we have some single-family homes. We have a lot of what here we call semi-detached, where the homes are completely separately owned and managed, but they do share a wall. And that's the way our home is. But we have a little front yard and a little backyard. 
that's very common here. It, it works out to about, uh, I'm nerdy, so I calculated the density. <laughs> and it works out to about 10 homes per acre, which I think is a nice uh, compromise between a very urban neighborhood and a sprawling neighborhood. It's, it's, it's one that's uh, in the middle. The walk score is in the 90s. The transit score is, I think, at least in the 80s, maybe more. We've got transit rail stations a half mile away in two different directions, and we've got lots of bus service a lot closer than that. I, I, I love my neighborhood. My, my wife was more of a suburban girl. I had been living more in the heart of the city, and so we found a middle ground where we could both be comfortable and we bought our house almost 30 years ago and we're still here and we love it. Fantastic. So earlier you mentioned the bicycle. So let's let's dive in and talk a little bit about your love for the bicycle. What's two two part question here? What's what's the earliest memory that you have of a bicycle of you either learning to ride or whatever? And then the second question is how did the passion, uh, you know, kind of reignite for the bicycle later on in life? <laughs> I'll tell you a funny anecdote. I never had a bicycle when I was a kid. So I did not learn it when a lot of people learn how to, how to ride a bike. My parents made me choose between a dog and a bike, and I took the dog. Uh, <laughs> but <laughs> later on, when I was in law school, I really wanted to ask this young woman out and she suggested that we go bike riding and I fear what the hell. <laughs> so we rented bikes and off we went and I did not crash. Uh, I did not make too much of a fool of myself and she and I had a great time and ended up staying together for a while and that was fun. Uh, and so I began to ride occasionally. But what really uh, ignited the passion was a couple of decades later, I had been a tennis player in high school and college and after college at the club level. And that was my sport and, and, and my passion. I also did, did some hiking, but primarily tennis. And you know, I reached the point around age 40 or so where I had passed my peak in tennis. And sports are more fun when you're getting better at them. And again, it was kind of an opportunity. By then, I was with Sharon. I had more vacation time than she did. So I was looking for something that I could do by myself, but with a group. And somebody suggested doing a bike tour and so I signed up for a bike tour in France. And the idea was to ride a week. This was in Burgundy. We rode a week in Burgundy. And then after my bike tour, Sharon had enough time to meet me in Paris. And then, then we had uh, time, time together in France af after my, my bike trip. On that bike trip, which was led by... Uh, a former member of the U.S. cycling team, I got totally hooked. This was great. I'm riding in the French countryside with somebody who is an elite rider. 
and who has patience showing me what to do and what not to do. And I'm with a great group of about 10 other people. And I never look back. I, I For a while, I tried to play both tennis and ride the bicycle, but I'm, I'm so passionate about the sports I get involved with that I, I felt like I had to choose one and get good at it. And so then the next 25 years of my life were all about cycling. And I, and, and I still ride, but I, but I rode very, you know, very avidly and, and, and passionately. And, and, and I know that, I, I mean, you're a triathlete, so cycling has certainly been part of your culture as well. It became a pretty major part of my life and, you know, it kept me healthy. Yeah, I, when I look back, I can certainly f- see different phases. And yes, as you mentioned, uh, during the, the phase of life when I was competing in triathlon and doing Ironman distance triathlons, that was a, a different relationship with the bike than I'd say that I have now. Now the relationship that I have with the bike is much more utilitarian in nature. And it's also a little bit more experiential in nature. And I had this discussion with uh, Nicole DeBoom on a, a previous podcast episode, and we talked a little bit about that because during the stage when you're like a serious athlete, and, and in her case, she was a professional athlete and, and a former uh, Ironman champion, it's your job, you know, it's work, it's training, it's serious. Whereas now it's, it's more relaxed. And talk a little bit about what the bike does in terms of how you experience cities and how you experience the environment that you're in, because it's a, it's a special relationship with the, on the bike. I've never been a utilitarian rider, so I've never experienced, uh, uh, it's more but, like commuting, <laughs> not as exciting. <laughs> well, you know, uh, it, but, but of course, you know, working as long as I did for an environmental organization, I knew many, many people who were, who were bicycle commuters and, and, and some of whom, you know, raced on the weekends and, and commuted during the week. Uh, for me, the most powerful aspect of the relationship with the bicycle is that you got to pay attention, and you also to do it well. You've you've got to relax, uh, and especially if you're uh, riding with other riders in a group, uh, you know, to work together, you have to know you, you've got to pay attention, but you can't be uptight or you'll screw it up and you know maybe crash. Most of us have had crashes if we've ridden bicycles, but. It's, it's not something that you want to do deliberately. So that sort of relaxed concentration produces uh, an almost zen-like meditative state for me. And to be able to do it in the beautiful countryside, of course, uh, which is the way I much have enjoyed it, is you know quite nice. And, and to do it with a group, I, I did most of my riding at the club level and you know we would ride 15 or 20 miles stop at a country store uh, enjoy each other's company enjoy each other's company working together you know uh, 
on the way back. I I, I was never a uh, distance riding was was never my strength. I, I I was more the guy who went fast for forty or fifty miles. And if it was relatively flat, I was the guy you wanted in front <laughs> because I could, you know, I could tow the group really well. If it was hilly, that was another situation because I'm bigger than a lot of uh, good climbers. And then afterwards, we'd, we would socialize again, you know, usually over pizza or beer or ice cream or, or, or some food that we felt we had earned <laughs> on, on the ride. So... For me, the relationship was about this zen-like, relaxed concentration while I was doing it, and then the sociability with with uh, uh, the other riders. What I do now are, are, are mostly short loops from my house, and you know that's a different kind of riding, but you still got to pay attention. And uh, you know, I know some of uh, some parts of some roads where I can go faster, and it's okay, you know. But a lot of times I'm not going very fast now, and uh, it, it's it's a different experience, but but one that I still uh, still enjoy. After this quick break, Cade discusses why it's so important to experience our cities and communities through the intimacy of walking and biking, dives into why beauty matters, and he reinforces the importance of engaging communities of color in their neighborhood revitalization processes. But first, allow me a brief moment to say, if you're enjoying the Active Towns podcast, please be sure to subscribe, rate, and review it on the listening platform of your choice so you won't miss a single episode. And the feedback really does help. Okay, that's all for this short intermission. Let's get this Peloton back up to speed with Cade Benfield. So when we take the walkability and the concept of active mobility and bikeability. And we apply that to the themes that you talk about in your book, People Habitat. Um, now that was published in 2014. So it's been a few years out. And I know that in the, in that book, which was a series of essays that you had, had done and you put together, and, and you can talk a little bit more about that if you'd like. At the core of the book, there's several chapters. I think it's like chapters 15 through 18 with chapter 20 thrown in, which was about kids exploring their, their communities. Talk a little bit about how important active mobility and the design of our cities is to this concept of people habitat. Uh, I think it's huge. As so many Americans unfortunately have to do, if you experience your community through your windshield. That, to me, is a very inferior form of existence than if you're experiencing it on foot uh, or on a bike. Dive into that a little deeper. When you say inferior, how so? I think it's isolating to be, uh, you know, confined to an automobile. And I say that as somebody, I'm I'm not down on cars, you know. There's another chapter of my book where I say driving should be an option. And, and you know, I do drive sometimes. And it's funny, sometimes people like us will get together and, and brag about the fact that they don't own a car. Or, or if they do own a car, it's this really beat up 
thing from 20 years ago. <laughs> and I say, look, I got a really nice car. <laughs> you know, I like my car, but I'm lucky enough not to have to drive it very much. And because of that, I can have these experiences that we were talking about earlier in, in, in our conversation today about experiencing uh, uh, the neighborhood and experiencing the neighbors. You can't do that in the same way when you're in a car. And I think it's, it's unfortunate that if driving should be an option, most people in America don't have that option. You know, I've got another chapter in the book that says Americans don't walk much and I don't blame them. And we can't blame people for not walking when we've been building environments in which walking is intrinsically inconvenient and unsafe. And for most of our suburbs, that's the way it is. You can walk on your block carefully if you're in a newer suburb, but a lot of them don't even have sidewalks. And if you want to go more than 500 feet, <laughs> you're going to be up against some pretty uh, serious traffic and scary places to walk. Well, and it sounds like what you're saying, because you said you said a couple of things there. You said inconvenient and unsafe, but there's an inference there, too, that it has to be comfortable. So it has to feel convenient. It has to feel safe, but it also has to feel comfortable, which brings us right back around to what we were talking about earlier. And actually, it was kind of what you had commented on the photos that I had posted when, when you said, oh, it's so green there. <laughs> and I replied back, well, a big part of that is the fact that we have this tree canopy. So those trees, and we talked about that earlier, is that's a huge part of making the environment just a little more comfortable. So many of those sort of, sort of stereotypical far out suburban locations that, you know, if they even thought to plant trees, there's nowhere near a canopy. And so that is another layer of creating far distances. It's inconvenient, but it's also not super comfortable. That's an excellent point because uh, people are going to do what, what they're comfortable doing and they're not going to do, to do what they're uncomfortable doing. And you touched on another point, which is dear to my heart, which is uh, nature in our communities. You know, I tell my folks that I talk to and give presentations to, if, if I could leave you with only three points, they would be walkability, nature, and being thoughtful about where we build. Nature in particular, including trees, and trees have special properties that have been documented in the scientific literature and, and are conducive to both mental and physical health, but so are other kinds of nature. And, and you know, people live longer when they have access to healthy nature near their, near their homes. That, that's been documented as well. So I like to say that nature is a wonder drug for cities and towns. It's a wonder drug for the environment because it brings cooler temperatures and it filters stormwater. It absorbs pollutants from the atmosphere, but it's also very, very good for our uh, physical and, and mental health. And I, I kind of made it a, uh, 
a priority of mine to to become not expert in the same way that the scientists are expert, but knowledgeable on this subject. And I, I read a lot of literature, a lot of very complicated literature, I might add. I, I, statistics was not my best course in college. And it, it's like some of these analyses are, are, are not for the timid. Yeah, but you but you do have this affinity for numbers and charts and graphs, and <laughs> and, uh, and that's a good segue. We can segue that into your webinar presentation, which was st uh, shaping healthy communities in an era of climate change. Six principles for a more resilient future. Number one is celebrate and invest in walkable neighborhoods. Number two, there's your nature provide abundance of accessible nature. Number three, be thoughtful about where to build. Number four, embrace density at human scale. Number five, promote green and healthy buildings. And number six, and this was also a chapter uh, that you named in your book, which was sustainability is where the heart is. It's, it's amazing that, and in, in you did such a wonderful job with this presentation, and it wasn't that it was a, it was this this wonderful blending of the data but you also had such richness in the photography that was there and so it was it was a wonderful one two punch of presenting the data but then also helping paint the picture literally <laughs> and and help to to help really drive the point home and tell the story and I'm really glad that you just brought that up about nature. And a big part of what I talk about with Active Towns is that part that uh, we have to have easy access to, to nature. And uh, sometimes I even talk about how, you know, street trees are inherently an activity asset. How? Well, it helps, you know, create that more comfortable environment. But then also being ha having easy access to wilderness and a lot of the teachings uh, that Richard Louv had in terms of getting us, you know, and having, we were walking around with nature deficit disorder. Yeah. I, I mean, I, I would say that it's uh, not only a more comfortable atmosphere, but also a more beautiful one. And, you know, beauty matters. And that's one reason I like to show a lot of photographs uh, with my presentations is because I want to show what's possible. And in some cases, I want to show where we screwed it up and why. But I really like showing in a more aspirational way about, you know, we can do this because it's been done. And uh, I also think people don't want to look at a lot of words on your slides, basically, you know. I mean, so I try to be somewhat careful with the words. I know I do get kind of wonky with the data every now and then. I've got my carbon maps, you know, that's probably where I get get the most wonky and, and, and data heavy. But I do close with sustainability is where the heart is, which is more an emotional point. And I, I, I think we relate to our environment in an emotional way and we should not discount that that is uh, tremendously important and you know it's 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 hard to quantify and measure and all those things but it it is not unimportant to the quality of our lives and the quality of our places 
So uh, I, I appreciate your, your, your bringing that up. I, uh, I think that in order to have an environment that is sustainable, we have to have places that are worth sustaining. You know, there's no sustainability without literal sustainability. And in order to have places that are worth sustaining, we have to have places that people can love. And I think that is tremendously uh, important in, in guiding me and sort of why I got into the environmental movement to begin with. I think a lot of us are drawn in by the beauty and maybe subconsciously, you know, the more uh, spiritual aspects of uh, the natural world. And we want to save it outside of our communities, but we also want it inside of our communities. I thank you for for those very kind words about the presentation and allowing me to talk about that a little bit. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So you said something there that, that really struck a chord, and that is beauty matters. Out on social media recently, and when I mean recently, in the last couple of months, you've been diving into your archive. Talk a little bit about that experience. <laughs> I, you know, for those who are listening and maybe don't know, I, I love to take pictures. And, you know, I'm not the best photographer in the world, but I am someone who enjoys it a lot. And I have a sense for which ones to show to other people and which ones not to show to other people. <laughs> so, you know, I've gotten the habit, of course, like lots of people, when I travel, I take photos. And when I'm close to home, as we've all been for the last several months, you know, I'm, I'm taking pictures uh, close to home. So more recently, I've thought, well, maybe I could go into the past a little bit and pull out some of my favorite uh, photos from my archives and show them. So, I, you know, I did a series on landscapes that people liked and uh, now I'm doing one on black and white photography of cities and towns. It's again, uh, the way I relate to photography is kind of the way I related to enjoying my bike rides so much. It's, it's almost a Zen type thing for me. It, it, it's, it's the right side of my brain, not the left side of my brain uh, when I am photographing. Uh, I couldn't tell you why I chose to frame the shot a particular way. I just do it intuitively. And, and fortunately, sometimes, sometimes people like that. One of the more satisfying things I've done in the last year, I did this just for myself. You know, I've, I've, I've written, you're kind enough to mention people habitat. I've, I've been involved in, in a number of books over the years, but I did a photography book earlier in the year, but it was just for myself. This wasn't for publication. It wasn't for sale. It was just to sort of collect, in this case, a book of black and white photography and see if I could design it and make it into a beautiful, tangible object that I could enjoy and give to friends and family. And it was one of the most enjoyable and satisfying things I've done in the last year. Again, totally using the intuitive side of my brain, not the analytical side of my brain. 
and I spent about a month on it and it was, it was great. Yeah. You made me chuckle there for a moment when you talked about snapping some of the photos of what not to do. Sometimes the, that negative thing of what not to do, which you can turn that around into a positive is, you know, say we're going to use this as a teaching platform, but it gets, it gets more traction and, and more attention and, and that's kind of the darker side of, of social media uh, is that sometimes the negative does get more shares and does get more attention. So I applaud you for, for doing what I try to do with Active Towns, which is to try to put a more positive spin on the imagery that I put forth. You know, there's a lot of negativity in life. Uh, you know, I'm going through some stuff right now that are like, health issues with people who are very dear to me. And we've got the pandemic and we have a political situation that many of us are, are not happy with. And, you know, if, if you're looking for negativity, you can find it. It's out there. <laughs> <laughs> but when I'm looking for stuff to share, I like to focus on, on, on things that are lovable, that are beautiful, that are where the heart is, you know, and Heck, for me, that might be watching a basketball game, you know, it's not always, you know, showing a, a, a great uh, tree-lined street, you know, but it's, it, it's, it's, it's both, you know, if we don't celebrate what the positive alternatives are in, in our lives, then we don't know what we're looking for. And that, that had an important role in my career, you know, first 20 years of my career were spent as a litigation lawyer and largely in adversary situations. And some of those years were litigation on behalf of the environmental community. And, you know, I was on what I felt was the right side, but I was spending all my time trying to stop bad things. And it's important that we stop bad things. But I was desperate to find something positive to advocate. And fortunately, I found some good mentors. And a lot of us were thinking of, of, you know, when we're thinking of the realm of cities, towns, and regions, around 1990 or so, gosh, it seems like a long time ago now, you know, a lot of us began thinking about this stuff at around the same time, you know, and... There were there was some serious land use work going on in in Oregon and and uh, Dick Moe at the National Trust for Historic Preservation was thinking about new ways of of uh, stewardship of our built environment. We had the New Urbanist School of uh, Architecture and Planning that came along around that time, and. Paris Glendening in Maryland uh, had his smart growth program. And a lot of this came out of that period in the 1990s. And it was, fortunately, I was in the right place at the right time to, to run across those things. And they had tremendous influence on me. And I, I changed my career from one of stopping things to advocating for things. Yeah, for positive things, yeah. For, for positive things. And I've, I've never really, well, I don't want to say I've never looked back because I still worry about sprawl and somebody's got to fight sprawl. It's not enough just to build the alternative. 
And I worry sometimes that too many of us in, in our world are thinking about building things and, and we're not thinking about preserving land and we're not thinking about keeping our regions compact. Even some of the people that we admire as architects and planners are working in places that are somewhat remote. And that's, in my view, not the best option for the environment in most cases. So we do have to keep paying attention to what we don't want to do. But when I started the, well, it wasn't just me, but when I became the leader of the Sustainable Communities Program at the Natural Resources Defense Council, my mantra to all of our staff who were working on that issue was, it's okay to be against something, but always articulate the positive alternative. And if you don't have the positive alternative in mind, and if you can't articulate that, then what you're doing isn't part of this program. It's part of some other program. But I want this program to be about positive change. Yeah. Well, and that's that's important. It, Kate, is there anything that we haven't discussed that you really want to make sure we talk about today? <laughs> well, I could talk all day and all night. And uh, it's been completely enjoyable in so many ways. We haven't talked much about buildings, and I guess I will mention that. And I also want to say a little bit about revitalization and equity. It's important that we not only get the design of the community right, but we've got to get the design of the buildings right. And for me, that starts with good stewardship of the good buildings that are already in place. But when we erect new buildings, we need to erect them in, number one, ways that are lovable, number two, ways that are green, ways that conserve our, our, our natural resources and pollute less. So I don't want buildings to get lost in the conversation. Well, and, and let's, let's dive deeper into that, because I think one of the most important facts that you bring up is, in fact, the siting of said building, because you can build the, the most wonderful lead qualified uh, building and then site it in a place where, uh, hey, guys, <laughs> what happened? Yeah. And, and, and a lot of ideal, idealistic green communities have done exactly that. Like a corporate headquarters out in the middle of nowhere that, that meets every, every green standard. You know, if, if only <laughs> if people weren't driving 40 miles to get to it, you know. And I want to say a little bit about equity and particularly when it comes to revitalizing our communities. You know, this is a, a time in America where we are being, some of us are being forced to think and others of us are initiating thought about equity and, and race. And there is an important dimension to that. It's not the only dimension, and I'm not sure it's even the most important dimension, but there is an important dimension to that that has to do with the way we build our communities. And particularly when it comes to revitalization and gentrification. And I think it is critical that many of our lower income communities, which in probably a majority of cases in cities at least, are, are communities of, of color. And we also have uh, rural communities that are lower income and need help as well. 
Those places need investment and they need good community design, good nature. All the things that we talked about as being desirable, those things have to be for everybody. And they have to be for the people in these communities of color and in these low-income communities as well. But it is so important that that be accomplished in a way so that the people who live there don't feel like something is being done to them, but that it is something that they are doing and guiding and controlling the redevelopment of, of, of their communities. And, you know, there have been some great examples of where folks have tried to do that. And I even worked on some when I was at NRDC. It's become fashionable in some urbanist circles to downplay the words community character because so many people use it to oppose things. But community character matters. And, and, the, and the character of some of these lower income communities matters a lot. I worked in one in Boston. It may have been poor in income, but it wasn't poor in culture. And it wasn't poor in community bonds. And we worked with that community to help them plan their own revitalization structure so that they then had something to advocate to their, to their municipalities. And it was a, it was a green, sustainable vision that they totally bought into. And we need more of that. We, we need more participation by communities of color, low-income communities, both rural and urban, in determining their future, including the future of their built environment, so that they have all of the things that we began this conversation by identifying as desirable. Yeah, yeah. And that reminds me of uh, an episode I recorded, uh, uh, I think it was episode number 26 with Roshan Austin out of uh, South Memphis, uh, Tennessee, and how uh, her CDC, you know, how her group is is really engaging with the, the community and, you know, getting them involved in scripting and planning and designing their future and having a good time with it as well, because the community bike ride is a big part of it that they try to do on a regular basis. And then the second episode that, uh, you know, comes to mind is uh, episode number 36 with Charles Brown, uh, just a couple of uh, episodes ago. Fantastic in terms of that whole relationship, specifically with addressing transportation and mobility equity issues in and how we can sort of pave our way forward for the future. Cade, we're, we're coming up to the end of our time. So I'm going to give you the final question, which is the only question that I gave to you ahead of time. <laughs> so for those listeners that have been inspired from our discussions here today in this episode, what advice do you have for them to help them make a difference in their community? Well, it's a great question. And uh, as you and I discussed in advance, everybody answers it a different way, which is good because there are a lot of, a lot of different ways to approach that. The only ways that have worked for me are, are number one, get acquainted with the other people who are involved in the things that you care about and who have already done some of the work and learn from them. And the other thing is to do your homework. 
know your facts. Don't just show up, you know, at a, at a meeting and give your passionate reasons why something that is important to you should be important to others. Find out what are the things that the decision makers care about. Tune into their value system and do your homework so that you have facts, figures, and arguments that relate to that value system that the people you need to have on your side. In any room you go into, your goal should be the mo- to be the most informed person in that room. And the only way to do that is to do your homework. That worked for me a lot of times. I found pe- smart people who knew more than I did. I learned from them. And then I did research. Then when I went into situations, I was prepared. And uh, if you're unprepared, you won't be as effective as you will be if you are prepared. Yeah. And I would say based on what we had talked about earlier is also come prepared to be able to present a compelling narrative, oh, a gosh, story absolutely. That, that pulls at the heartstrings. Because it, as, as we talked about earlier, those facts, those figures, those arguments of logic aren't really going to uh, resonate with a large number of people who may not even, maybe maybe those facts and figures and numbers just go over their head or it just, you know, they don't believe it, they dismiss it. But if it's a narrative, it's a, if it's something that can be told in, in beauty, in touching stories, uh, in wonderful uh, photography or video, suddenly you're 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 firing on all of the cylinders the the logic side as well as the storytelling side that's a terrific addition to 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 what i said i couldn't agree more Cade, this has been an absolute joy thank you so much for joining me on the active towns podcast i had such a great time and uh, i know that you and i will be talking about these issues for many days to come and thank you so much for having me on, on on this one You are quite welcome. Thank you all so very much for listening. I really do appreciate Cade and his sincere generosity. I hope you found this conversation to be both inspiring and helpful. Personally, I can attest that Cade's photography is a nice reminder to snap more photos and shoot more video clips when I'm just out and about. And I try to post many of these images out on the Active Towns Instagram and Facebook feeds in case you'd like to follow along. Now, just a quick reminder before we part ways, please don't hesitate to drop me a line if you have any feedback and or suggestions for topics or guests. My email is john, that's J-O-H-N, at activetowns, that's plural, dot O-R-G. It's always so wonderful to hear from y'all. And finally, as always, if you're enjoying the Active Towns podcast, please help us grow our audience by telling a friend or two. Okay, that's all for episode number 40. Wow, that seems like a cool milestone. Thanks once again going out to Cade for joining me on the Active Towns podcast and to y'all for listening. Please take care of yourselves and one another. And until next time, this is John signing off by wishing you much activity, health, and happiness. Cheers. Cheers.